Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. This semester's lecture series, entitled Power to the People, Identity, Difference and Inequality, has been coordinated by Dr Kate Kirkpatrick. Handouts, presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And it's absolutely amazing to see so many of you here. And I'm, I'm actually a bit worried about the amount of material I would like to cover because this subject is absolutely enormous. So if you don't mind, I'll be reading. But as head of uh, theology and religious studies, I probably have to start from a confession. Well, my name is Marat Sterian, and I was born and raised in the Soviet Union the officially atheist state, where everyone was supposed to believe that religion was a form of false consciousness. The opium of the people, used by dominant social groups to control and subordinate the working classes, the true creators of everything socially valuable. The abolition of religion, according to this official atheist view, was therefore a precondition for achieving communism, the society of equal individuals. Theoretically, it looked like a plausible proposition, except it didn't seem to correspond to the reality that I could observe as I grew older. Not only wasn't religion fading away in the Soviet Union, the communist project itself seemed to have been creating a new kind of inequality based on the proximity to the Soviet leadership and access to some basic goods, housing, food, clothing, that were endemically in short supply. If I could draw any lesson from that experience, it was that the relationship between religion and equality of inequality was anything but straightforward. It was quite complex and often paradoxical. And this is what I'm going to share with you. Later in my life, engaging with social sciences at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and thanks to my fascination with London's religious and social life, these experiences have brought that complexity and those paradoxes of the relationship between religion and inequality into sharp relief. And this is what I'd like to share with you today. I'd like to start from some vignettes from my ongoing research on religion and prophecy in London. It's, it's going to be a small bit of that uh, research. And then proceed to some findings from broader classical sociological thinking on the theme of religion and equality. I'd like to stress that my aim is to share with you some of uh, the thinking about this theme rather than comprehensively cover that vast array of variations and examples. So, let's start from a brief stroll over London. Even more so, let's start from our very own King's College, London. So, 
We're near London Bridge Tube Station at one of the amazing courtyards that form Guy's Hospital, with the statue of Sir Thomas Guy at its center. A locally-born printer and publisher, he was the founder of the hospital originally meant to accept patients that another hospital, St. Thomas, deemed incurable. Uh, we know that St. Thomas has been eventually moved to where it is now, uh, near Westminster Bridge. Sir Thomas Guy embodies the spirit of early modern capitalism and puritanism. Puritans believed that capitalist entrepreneurialism was God's calling and their success in acquiring wealth uh, was a sign of being elected for eternal salvation. Yet, as Christians, they also believed in charity. Thomas Guy was known as a miser and he made most of his fortune from investing in the South Sea Company, which eventually became infamous for its slave trading. Thus, uh, Sir Thomas's charity didn't extend to slaves, so paradoxically, his charity towards some underprivileged people was funded through suffering caused to the others. A short walk from Guy's Hospital takes us to Borough High Street, where we can see the site of the former Queen's Head Tavern. Here, in the early 17th century, certain John Harvard was born. Coming from a family of successful Puritan uh, entrepreneurs who had made a fortune from meat and ale trade, John chose a religious vacation and joined Puritan clergy. He, however, lived a rather short and tragic life. His father and many siblings died in an outbreak of plague, and he succumbed to tuberculosis at the age of 30. In the meantime, John Harvard managed to escape the plague, earned a small fortune from the sale of uh, Queen's Head Tavern, and ended up in the east coast of the United States, where he bequeathed all his fortune and around 1,400 books to a small college in Massachusetts. The college was eventually renamed and became, yes, Harvard University with its mission to provide access to enlightenment to as many people as possible. Among its most celebrated attendees, if not graduates, was, of course, Mark Zuckerberg, who launched his Facebook from the university premises in early February 2004. And I'm leaving it to you to decide whether Facebook is a force for equality or inequality. Within another 10 minutes walk, we find ourselves in another remarkable place called the Crossbones Graveyard. It represents a rather complex relationship between religion and inequality. It is a burial place of destitute women who, in their lifetime, were selling their bodies in order to survive. The local bishops of Winchester benefited from this trade, as they allowed it on the condition that the women, known as Winchester Geese, paid part of their earnings in rent and fines to the church. However, the women were not allowed to receive a normal burial because of their sinful trade and un underprivileged social status. So their graves were relegated to unconsecrated grounds. This place also reflect, reflects the dramatical changes in which we now view public morality and equality with local residents 
having recently created a shrine, uh, a shrine at the vault of this graveyard to commemorate what they call the outcast dead. Staying on the theme of inequality and the afterlife, let's move across the river to the now prosperous borough of Kensington and Chelsea. Here, we can visit two strikingly different cemeteries within 10 minutes' walk from each other. Brompton Cemetery is one of what is known as Magnificent Seven Cemeteries uh, in London. Established in 1840 to alleviate the shortage of affordable uh, burial places in the overcrowded inner city, it eventually became a commercial enterprise, struggling to fund its construction and uh, maintenance needs. To attract investors, the management employed Benjamin Ward, an architect, who redesigned the grounds in the shape emulating St. Peter's Cathedral in the Vatican. The idea behind this design was to express the equality of the dead, forming one eternal church. However, in the earthly reality, this led to marketization of burial places and differentiation of prices for burial allotments. The closer to the domed chapel, the more expensive. The idea of equality of the dead before God come into competition with the reality of capitalist society, both enabling aesthetically appealing display of earthly success and reflecting spectacular earthly inequalities. Within 10 minutes walk from the splendor of Brompton Cemetery, we come to what might look like an unremarkable place uh, in the part of Chelsea, interestingly known as World End. This place, the Moravian burial, burial Ground, is a tribute to a remarkable struggle for equality in the name of Christian faith. The Moravian Brothers is one of the oldest Protestant denominations originating from the late uh, 15th century Bohemia, now part of the Czech Republic. Both religious and social rebels of their time, the Moravian Brothers adhered to teachings of Jan Hus, who lived in the second half of the 14th century, early uh, 15th century, a radical precursor of the European Protestant Reformation. He claimed that any social hierarchy was ungodly and must be rejected. For the Moravian brothers, individuals appear before God as totally equal, so any display of social distinction on their burial ground was seen as ungodly. Hence, as you can see, completely flat burial places. It's remarkable, just in the center of London, you can easily say that you miss it when you pass by. However, even communist Moravian brothers divided their cemetery into four sections, for unmarried and married women and men. And after all, they called themselves brothers, not sisters and brothers, and not sisters. Time constraints permit only one more and rather distinctive variation on our theme. The Church of Christ the King is one of the few churches built by a 19th century Christian movement known as the Catholic Apostolic Church, not to be confused with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, or the Irvinites, uh, as they are also known after one of their founders. 
These were mainly wealthy and privileged people who shared the intense belief that they had to prepare themselves and the Christian church for the imminent second advent of the Lord. They invested much of their wealth in these preparations, including the construction of one of the largest and most remarkable, I would say, church buildings in London. It's actually in Gordon Square near UCL. Uh, and uh, the University College London as a space for storing a supply of goods necessary to survive the final trials and tribulation. If you find yourself nearby, look down, you know, how sort of uh, huge this, this basement is. The church members anticipated that they would eventually emerge as the elected few destined for eternal uh, salvation. This is a remarkable example of how social privilege manifested itself in the belief and preparations for the privileged position in the world to come. Now, let's draw some insights from, what, from this example. The only insights, kind of, if you like, ideas to pursue further. So, what I think we can conclude preliminarily is that religion offers a range of resources to legitimize equality and sanctify social structures that put specific socioeconomic characteristics such as class or demographics, race, ethnicity, gender, geographical location at severe disadvantage. Religion also has the great capacity to inspire and justify struggle for social change, uh, be this reform, utopia, or rebellion. The appeal to religion in the struggle for equality or justification of inequality is fraught with unintended consequences, further provoking religious innovation and theological uh, revolution. Let me now move to the sociological part of our discussion. Social scientists have long been fascinated by the capacity of religion to both legitimize inequality and inspire protest against it. This is because by the very nature of our trade, we have always been unashamedly interested in people, in particular in patterns of social interactions or regular uh, and taken for granted uh, ways people do things. Indeed, why do people accept the authority of those who seek to dominate them and to preserve the status quo of inequality and exploitation when doesn't seem to be any, any, any force even to make them behave in that way. Moreover, why do they often hold the, their subjugators in awe, even when there is no obvious force preventing their resistance to it? Perhaps it doesn't come as a surprise that religion was a salient focus of the intellectual inquiry at the inception of social sciences in the mid-19th century. Two founding fathers of uh, the sociology of religion and actually social science and political science more, more generally, Karl Marx and Max Weber were particularly important in seeking to explain how religion could justify inequality or be a potent source of reforms, utopian visions, and rebellion in the name of equality. My mentioning Marx as an authoritative intellectual source on religion may come as a surprise to many of you. Marx and Marxism are commonly associated with the atheist adage, religion is the opium of the people, which comes across as quite dismissive of religion rather than imparting any significance to it. However, let's see the entire passage in which in 1844, 
Karl Marx wrote that sentence, and he was only 26. Religion is the general theory of this world. It's encyclopedic compendium, it's logic, it's spiritual point de neur, it's enthusiasm, it's moral sanction, it's solemn compliment, and it's universal basis of consolation and justification. It is the fantastic realization of the human essence, since the human essence has not acquired any true reality. And a little bit further, religious suffering is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and the protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world, and the soul of the soulless condition. It is the opium of the people. I'm leaving it to you to contemplate this quotation and hopefully read more about it, but it is clear that Marx is well aware of the intellectual and emotional power of religion, both to make people accept the world with its injustice and inequality, and to serve as a vehicle of protest against the real suffering. Indeed, we tend to forget that the founders of all major religions from the Jewish prophets to Siddhartha Buddha, and from Jesus of Nazareth to Muhammad of Mecca, and from Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikhism, to Martin Luther, were not only religious, if you allow me to say, innovators, but they were also great social reformers. Their prophetic words and divine revelations resonated with people of their time, not only because they sowed the seeds of new theological thinking, but also because they offered the hope, the prospect, and the promise of surer, swifter, and shorter ways to a just and fair society, to quote Brian Wilson's phrase about the appeal of religious innovation. Marx's ideas about religion and equality were further developed by thinkers such as Friedrich Engels, Karl Kautsky, and uh, Antonio Gramsci, all Marxists. While the early Marxist philosophical assumption about religion as form of false consciousness is hardly shared by most contemporary sociologists of religion, the Marxist perspective on religion's capacity to inspire resistance to and protest against inequality remains potent. And in his Foundations of Christianity, Karl Kautsky points out that at the time and place of Jesus' prophecy, radical ideas, the ideas of, about collective property and ownership were pervasive. He quotes from the Jewish scholar Philo of Alexandria, who described the sect of essence that existed uh, at, the same, at the time of Jesus in the following way. No one among them ventures at all to acquire any property, whatever, of his own neither house, nor slave, nor farm, nor flocks and herds, nor anything, anything of any sort, which can be looked upon as the fountain of provision of riches, but they bring them together into the middle as a common stock and enjoy one common general benefit from it. Compare this with how the New Testament uh, paints the picture of early Christian communities. All that believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had the need. Please don't take it as my kind of appeal to the Christian communism. I'm just reporting you know, certain trends in, in history of Christianity. Uh, 
According to Kautsky, this uh, radical thought of early Christians reverberated throughout Western history, stimulating and justifying rebellions against inequality and oppression, and serving as utopian visions to emulate. Between the 15th and 17th century, the European Reformation saw dozens of movements seeking to overcome inequality and justice. Movements such as Beckhards, Valdensians, Apostolicans, here in Britain, John Whitcliffe's movement, Lollards, uh, Taborites and Hussites in Germany and Czech Republic, uh, what is now Czech Republic. Bohemian uh, brethren rejected what they saw as man-made Christianity of the official church and called for returning to God-given rather than man-made Christianity embodied in early Christian communities. Friedrich Engels, Karl Marx's close friend and actually sponsor of his studies, wrote a study of the German peasant war of the 16th century in which he showed how much it was driven by the ideas of Christian communism and the great role the radical Protestant sect of Anabaptists played in it. The idea of Christianity as a source of both conformity and radicalism wasn't confined to Marxist scholars. Ernest Trilch, the liberal German theologian who worked in the early 20th century, elaborated this idea in his influential book, Social Teachings of the Christian Churches. It explored the Valdensians, Wycliffe, Lollard, Stubrites, uh, Moravian brothers, uh, we've come across them in our London walk, as examples of what he calls the communism of love. Now, I'd like to look in some detail at a particular kind of belief that um, motivated these Christian revolutionaries, namely that the unjust world was coming to an end and the new world uh, of justice and equality, the paradise on earth, was emerging, emerging imminently. That is in their lifetime. Last year, actually, I gave uh, a lecture precisely on this topic of uh, the millenarian movements, uh, the AKC. Uh, this mindset is known as millenarian belief. Uh, that is related to the vision of the millennium of Christ's rule on earth, as described in the book of Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse of John, the final book of the New Testament. However, the similar millenarian beliefs are part and parcel of most, if not all, religious traditions and are culturally and socially pervasive. They can be found in different forms and shapes in Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, particularly in the Pure Land Buddhist tradition, and Islam, and in particular in Shia Islam. All these religious traditions have visions of perfect societies and spawned movements that saw themselves as agents of God's will to destroy the world of injustice and create some kind of earthly or terrestrial or extraterrestrial uh, paradise. Those involved in these movements saw themselves as living through end times and involved in one way or another in creating ideal societies, places of justice, harmony, prosperity, fellowship, and ultimate enlightenment. It is easy to imagine how millenarian beliefs could inspire both conformity and radical movements to change the world. People can accept the extant injustice in anticipation of the divine intervention uh, to change the world, or 
they can see themselves as agents of God's will and become revolutionaries fighting for the new world and building it. I'd like to invite you to think about the striking similarities between religious millenarian beliefs and secular millenarian uh, ideologies, uh, such as communism. Indeed, I think it's here. Yeah, uh, the recent monumental study by Yuri Slyoskin, the uh, Stanford academic, presented a very, in, uh, I would say, convincing picture of the Bolshevik movement or the communist movement in the Soviet Union as a millenarian sectarian uh, movement. I don't have the time to talk about it in more detail, but if you have the time and the stamina to go through a thousand pages, I would recommend uh, uh, this, this book. However, one fascinating aspect of lived millenarian beliefs is their inadvertent consequences. Contrary to the common view that utopian millenarian expectations never come true, there is a sense in which they always come true but not necessarily in the way believers expect them to. They can result in even more violence, injustice, and inequality than in the social order that the rebellious revolutionaries challenged uh, in the first instance. Arguably, this is what happened as the result of the German peasant war in the process of the communist millenarian project, as Yuri Slyoskin argues. However, the millenarian movements can also stimulate discipline, hard work, and cultivation of moral virtues in anticipation of the new world to come. As a result, millenarian groups can inadvertently stimulate earthly success, and therefore the interest in, defy, in defending the status quo, including private property. It's a miraculous transformation of uh, what used to be a millenarian uh, rebellious movement of Mennonites uh, into a very well-established uh, religious group in the United States. You can see all this kind of private property defenses you know, on, on their prem premises. I'm now moving to Marx Weber, another founding father of social sciences and political sciences for that matter, whose uh, ideas may also be useful in thinking about why and how uh, religion can be instrumental in people's accepting inequality or challenging it. At the center of Weber's thinking is the concept of authority or the capacity of particular individuals or groups to expect or command obedience without necessar necessarily using coercion. This, uh, Weber argues, happens on three different grounds and with different consequences. Authority can be traditional, that is, people accept it because it's always been that way. For example, the authority of monarchs, parents, teachers, priests, and so on. It doesn't have to be codified in laws and regulations. People accept this type of uh, authority because for them, it's a reasonable, familiar, and natural way of doing things. Rational legal of, uh, type of authority is a modern phenomenon to do with the rise of modern states that seek to codify rules and regulations and rationalize them as the only, uh, the only effective and acceptable form of social behavior. This type of authority is embedded in state institutions, such as the government, law enforcement agencies, and tax authorities. However, most interesting for Weber and for our purposes today is what he calls charismatic authority, seen as embodied in particular individuals, graced 
and what charisma means, grace, with the ability to know, express, and enable things beyond ordinary human experiences. So the value of their knowledge and their personalities overrides any stipulations of the existing tradition or law, obviously in the eyes of their followers. As Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Nazareth said, but I say unto you, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Indeed, sociologically speaking, the ability of founders of all religions to create powerful movements and introduce social change had much to do with the fact that they both claimed and were accepted, and it's important, it's not just a claim, it's also being accepted, as having this kind of authority. Contrary to the common view, this type of authority is very much in existence today, embodied in the array of new religious movements that are proliferating in the world today, and political movements. There is a sense, for example, in which the Iranian revolution can be seen in that way, as very much uh, enabled by the charismatic authority of Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, similar dynamics we can find in other uh, political movements and groups, and for example, in the rise of populism that we can observe these days. I would like to dwell on it, but unfortunately the time constraints sort of, you know, make me avoid that temptation. Another idea of Weber has to do with his highly influential book, The Protestant Ethics and the Spirit of Capitalism. In it, Weber famously argued that a particular branch of Protestantism, known as Calvinism or Puritanism, inadvertently contributed to the emergence of modern capitalism as we know it. Calvinists believed in the doctrine of predestination according to which God predestines individuals to either salvation or eternal damnation. However, this won't be revealed to individuals during their lifetime. This, Weber argued, created a particular kind of psychological tension that stimulated Calvinist's search for the signs of being predestined for salvation and eventually led them to believe that this sign was their success in business. Thus, most effective and rational ways of conducting business, from good bookkeeping to constant investment and reinvestment of profit, became part of their religious duty and the surest way to entrepreneurial success. It became the only assurance of future salvation. However, once the modern capitalist system was created, it no longer required religious underpinnings and became an iron cage no one in the Western world could escape without the risk of finding themselves on social margins, according to Weber. Yet, religion remains significant not only in inspiring protest, but also in stimulating search for alleviating the effects of inequality inherent in the capitalist economic system. I would say in any probably economic system that we have known so far. However, while these attempts did contribute to the evolution of modern capitalism, we can also observe that they tended to have unintended consequences. One early example of this are the Quakers. It was a Christian non-conformist movement that originated in the 17th century England and espoused the ideas of total equality of all human beings. For Quakers, seeking pure wealth at the expense of spiritual life was sin. However, 
Quakers were also uh, perse uh, a persecuted religious minority and had to support themselves by establishing successful commerce and trade. To reconcile the need for entrepreneurialism and their religious beliefs, Quakers sought to create what came to be known as Quakers' capitalism, paying their workers higher wages, setting up model villages for their workers. But you can see, see some of these uh, villages, for example, near Glastonbury, with relatively comfortable homes, providing education, social clubs, and introducing Saturdays as days off. The result was a number of highly successful com companies with efficient and motivated workforce, more motivated than another, entrepreneurial uh, groups, uh, such as Cadbury's, Longman's, Clark's, uh, and uh, Barclays and Lloyd's banks. Well, we know what happens with successful companies. Obviously, they no longer belong to the Quakers. None of these companies is now associated with Quakers, and they have become part and parcel of modern capitalism. I would like to skip the bit about uh, the British Methodism. You can read about it elsewhere. And move to something quite different. But I just want to show you the variety of ways in which religion, or religious resources, if you like, such as beliefs, practices, organizations, and so on, can be used to address issues of inequality. And while moving to the issues of religion and gender, in relation to the power and inequality. We are now increasingly aware, obviously not, about, not only about the economic inequality, but we are increasingly and profoundly concerned about other types of inequality, including gender inequality. Very much to the successive ways of feminism, these inequalities of power and gender are very much in our, if you like, public discourse and public policy. Religion is very often seen as the force justifying the inequality in power relations. We can think about patriarchal doctrines, mythologies, hierarchies, teachings on gender roles and sexuality. We can sort of think of many, many examples of this. But is religion inherently patriarchal? The increasing number of studies show that actually the situation is much more complex and much more interesting. And we can argue that religion provides resources for both supporting and resisting dominant uh, power, including patriarchal relationships. Linda Woodhead's research is particularly instrumental in this. And she draws very much the empirical studies that we all have. One of them uh, shows that very often women address this issue of inequality of power by actually embracing paradoxically, uh, more conservative religious groups, such as Lynn uh, Davidman's study of um, Jewish women joining conservative religious uh, Jewish groups. She asks the question, why do modern Jewish women turn to Orthodox Judaism? And what she concluded was that they were attracted to it, not despite of uh, the conservatism of these groups, but precisely because of it, precisely because of it. Because they offered, I'm giving you obviously a short answer, you need to read the whole book to see the complexity of the arguments. Because um, uh, these groups offered a clear alternative to the confusing and contradictory roles offered by modern society. For example, it was clear that they were primarily mothers and wives as 
the key part of their uh, identity. And the husband was a protector of, of the family, as opposed to kind of very vague, in their perception, contemporary modes of masculinity. Another interesting study asked another very puzzling question of why some women in the United States absolutely voluntarily join uh, and actually conspicuously present in American mega, conservative mega churches, which are led by, by conservative male pastors. But 50, half of the members of these groups, uh, I would like to stress that these are groups based on voluntary membership, are women. And what it shows that women actually find their way in these groups to assert their own interests and uh, redefine power relations by, for example, uh, setting up their own groups, Bible groups, advising the pastors, pushing you know, their demands, their understandings of how these church, uh, churches should be like. In other words, they put forward uh, and successfully defend the female inter interpretations uh, of the Bible. Another interesting way of addressing the issue of power inequality was uh, analyzed in Paul Hillis and Linda Woodhead's uh, book, Is Religion Given Way to uh, Spirituality, the Spiritual uh, Revolution? They noticed that 80% of women in so-called spiritual groups as opposed to institutional religious groups were women. So the question was why? And again, to cut the long story and complicated, sophisticated story short, what these women found in these spiritual groups or in practicing, if you like, spirituality individually is relocating and redefinition of power and authority. They were focusing on what they called the spirituality within as opposed to uh, that in, in, embodied in institutional churches. It gave them instant remedies in a busy and uncertain world. It was a kind of power and authority which was always with them. And they uh, acquired more control of their self, determined not by social position, but discovered within themselves. And probably the most radical, if you like, attempt to redefine authority in, in gender uh, relation is the proliferation of groups known as Wicca or sometimes called new paganism, in particular feminist movements within that religious current. Uh, one example, a spectacular example of it, is the goddess feminist movement, which uh, originated from the United States, from San Francisco. Uh, and one of the most influential communities was the reclaiming community of witches, in San Francisco, led by Starhawk. It's obviously an adopted name. This was an example of rather radical thinking about gender roles, because it redefined uh, spirituality, investing the spiritual power in women, seeing women as more spiritually powerful uh, than, than men, and by doing that, kind of redefining uh, power relations in gender relation. So religion became uh, a source of superior power for, for women. So I've covered quite a lot of ground today, given you a number of examples. Uh, but the, my main message was that the relationship between religion and equality and inequality is rather complex. This is because inequality manifests itself in a variety of different ways. We can think about inequality of 
uh, economic inequality, inequality in gender relations, inequality that results from characteristics such as race, ethnicity, sexuality, and so on. And these relationships are very complex. On the other hand, religion itself is an immensely complex, shall I say, phenomenon? It's something immensely complex. It involves beliefs, practices, uh, organizations, but also it uh, involves a huge amount, huge variety of human creativity, if you like. And it gives a number of resources to address the issues of uh, inequality. So I invited you to think about it, hopefully, in a little bit more sophisticated way than you might have had before, or probably you just agree with what I have, have uh, what I had to share with you. Surprisingly, I have managed to cover quite a lot of grounds, and even uh, can give you more time for your lunch. Depriving people of lunch is the worst kind of inequality you can <laughs> imagine. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.